Welcome to Depollution, the podcast from Salvage Wire. In this podcast, we will be interviewing interesting and inspiring leaders to discuss issues that are facing the vehicle salvage and vehicle recycling industries, along with other leaders who can challenge and inspire the whole industry. In this podcast, we welcome Steve Fletcher. Steve is the head of the Ontario Automotive Recycling Association and also head of Auto Recycling Canada. Let's get straight into my conversation with Steve. So a bit of an introduction, a little bit about your career, who you've worked for, your roles and, and what you're currently doing uh, around around the automotive recycling industry. Sure. I'm, um, I have um, somewhat extensive marketing, communications, advertising background. That's where I came out of uh, MBA 30 some odd years ago and, and started to work through product management into an advertising agency and into my own communications agency. And um, so that's kind of what I like to do. It's what I've gravitated towards. And I ended up taking on um, a, a network of recyclers as a client to provide some communications expertise um, for they hadn't, had a, a true association they were more of a business network mm-hmm. and as i got sitting at the desk and just answering the phone and, and kind of guiding them on how to interact with each other with the public it just started to attract benefits mm-hmm. and they were like you know we really need to form an association so regardless of how you do business let's figure out um you know what can we share in terms of information how do we just professionalize how we interact with governments, with other entities, and just kind of kept adding on benefits, which added on uh, associate members, new members, sort of merged with some other groups that were out there. And kind of went full time about uh, 25 years ago, almost. Um, and, And just sort of went from running the Ontario uh, association, sort of the largest uh, group within Canada, um, but eventually there was enough national, even international activities that uh, helped form the Auto Recyclers of Canada. So it's it's an umbrella of seven associations like the Ontario Association, and so that's something that I do now. I'm I'm technically self-employed, uh, but I have service contracts with. The Ontario Association with the Atlantic Association, and then with the Umbrella um, National Association ARC, and uh, just sort of figure out you know which entity am I, uh, am I working for, depending on you know what the task is at hand, and and because there's such a tremendous overlap in shared interests mm-hmm. that uh, it just uh, kind of been able to stitch together a a career for a long time in a sector that's really hasn't had a lot of kind of professional background to it all. I'll go to a lot of meetings and they'll, you know, you, you talk to them and they're just like, you're not an auto recycler, are you, Steve? No, I, I'm really not. I've never worked in the business, never sold a part, never bought a car, but just through, I think those communication training skills kind of learned how, uh, the industry operates, how people perceive it, and you know what kind of role I can play to just make sure that the auto recyclers are understood better. 
um, yeah. and at its base. Yeah. So you've over those 20, 25 years, you've seen some massive changes in the industry um, as, as the industry's grown and, and using your words, become more professional. So, so it, it, it's it's really uh, you know the, the industry's been around forever you know ever since there's been cars there's been auto recyclers and they've always been really strong at a very localized basis uh, that's been their trading area it's where they got their cars it's where they sold their parts and it's where the beginnings of their trading networks were very localized so as the industry's consolidated as it's even globalized. It, it's required more interaction at the provincial level and then the national level, and more so at the international level. That uh, you know we do, we don't do a lot of direct commerce between country to country uh, with ARC, uh, but being able to talk to and understand the ARA in the U.S. Uh, the VRA in uh, the UK, you know, the, the Japanese, we've learned so much about, you know, how those markets operate. Mm -hmm. And so we're, we're, we can take the best of what we see there and say that that's fabulous what they're doing. You know, let's bring that back to Canada. Mm -hmm. And then hopefully just, you know, here's what we're doing. You know, if you want to understand, you know, why we're doing it, then, you know, we'd be delighted to share with you. So it's just that sharing mindset that's taken us from a local business all the way up to a, a global industry amazing amazing and and i know from you know conversations we've had in the past you've you've got some great working relationships with both local and national government as well as vehicle manufacturers and importers how how did this come about and what can the uk recyclers or recyclers in other parts of the world learn from your experience and 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 build those relationships um for the longest time, you know, people really didn't understand our industry. You know, we're, we're part of that automotive economy, uh, but we're the back end to it. And, and even from a consumer perspective, we think that when someone's done with their car, they're really just done with it. They want to move on to the new car. They don't really care what happens uh, to their scrapper, their end of life vehicle. Um, and we see that in all kinds of even regulations that they'll, they'll government will come out with some uh, things for the automotive sector and we'll get trapped in it um, because they just they haven't thought of who we are and, and how we operate and what role that we play. The big thing that happened to us was uh, that it was the National Vehicle Scrappage Program about uh, 10 years ago um, that the federal government uh, in an effort to minimize um, particulates and, and that type of, of environmental problem uh, with the older vehicles, they wanted to incent consumers to take their old car off of the road. So, um, so the U.S. type of cash for clunkers mm -hmm. um, business. But like Canada, they, they don't kind of come out and say, you know, we're going to do this and we don't really care what it does to your business. Uh, they basically wanted to talk to us about, you know, what happens to a car now um, and ultimately their fear, which drove a lot of really good policy work, was they didn't want to solve one environmental problem and create another problem with the car itself uh, not being handled properly. Mm -hmm. So over a course of 
almost two years of consultations in terms of, of you know, what, how do we operate, where are our gaps? Uh, they came up with a code of practice that if you are going to handle these national scrappage vehicles, uh, we, they went through the process of a developing a code of practice with us. They actually contracted us to do it. And then we provided the training so that if you were on that program, you were trained to that standard, and then you were rewarded with vehicles from the program. Mm -hmm. So Canada's was a very uh, methodical approach to it, and it wasn't an over-incentive. They were only offering $300 for your old car, so it didn't dramatically change the landscape. But what it did for us was it gave us an identity. Mm -hmm. It gave us a reason to go to our members and say, if you go through these steps to demonstrate that you're treating a car properly, at the end of it, you're going to be rewarded with vehicles. And it, and it created all kinds of positives on top of positives because the manufacturers wanted a bigger incentive. They wanted a stimulus-like incentive of, you know, $1,000, $5,000 so they could move new cars. And, mm -hmm. and the feds kind of held their ground and said, no, that's not what we're trying to do here. If you want to do that, we will let you piggyback on top of it. Mm. So they came up with their own incentives, which allowed us to have direct uh, relationships and direct correspondence with them, uh, which when we got to the policy side of, you know, hey, why don't we take this voluntary code and make it mandatory, make it a licensed system? We were able to have the conversations with them to get them to support that. It wasn't a threat to them. Mm -hmm. And they ended up uh, sort of helping us have a bigger voice than if it were just us saying, hey, auto recyclers need some help. You know, most governments would go, well, who are you? You're, you're the small <laughs> guy in this thing. But when we had the manufacturers with us at the table, yeah. it was like, wow, oh, okay, these guys are serious. And mm -hmm. these guys are, are leading us somewhere. And, and we've been able to maintain that momentum ever since. Wow, amazing, amazing. And that... And that is the Canadian Auto Recyclers Environmental Code. Yeah, yeah. What what came out of the this the National Scrappage at that point it was called the National Scrappage Standard, I believe. But we um, once that program ended, so it had a sunset date mm -hmm. um, for the incentive. Uh, so we went to the feds and said, you know, that one of the big, biggest successes of that scrappage program is the fact that we have this standard. Yeah. We think it should vest with the industry. We will be the guardians of it. We will make it available to anybody. Um, so once they said, yes, we would like to do that uh, intellectual um, property transfer, we've rebranded it as the Canadian Auto Recyclers Environmental Code. Mm -hmm. And ARC Board of Directors made that mandatory for membership. So at that point in time, we were still doing some... Uh, dealer take back programs with the manufacturers. So again, the financial incentive to meet the standard uh, was built into the system. Mm -hmm. And now we've been about eight years with that code as the backbone of what it means to be an ARC member. And, and we use it at every opportunity to demonstrate to people that there is a proper way to handle these vehicles, not to talk about it, not to say, Hey, we you somebody should do this, but we just did it, and then said this is what we do. Uh, we don't know what the rest of the industry does, and that 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 was a powerful message to uh, uh, say to both government and the manufacturers. The standard need not kill an industry by putting it in place if done smartly with the right incentives. 
it's it's one of those win-wins that that works for everybody wow that's amazing that's amazing and and still in day-to-day use of now how do you audit and monitor that as you as you as you go through year on year on year so the requirement um, to have a CARIC audit, um, they, they were further refined it so that it needs to be a successful CARIC audit. Mm-hmm. And success at that point in time was defined as a score of 75%. Uh, the ARC board uh, then said, well, you, just to keep it relevant, you need to have a successful audit every two years if you have that base of 75, but every three years, if you're over 85%. So there was an incentive to continue to improve. Um, so we ended up with uh, five trained auditors uh, across the country. And we would sort of connect the auditor to the recycler. Uh, we had really good continuity with the auditor so mm-hmm. that they were knowledgeable. Um, and it wasn't just, you know, I'm going to score you against this standard and give you a number. They really were there to help them. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of members who were, you know, I don't want somebody to come into my yard and telling me what to do. Uh, but we made it sure that it was a very, uh, there was a dialogue um, yeah. so that the auditors had knowledge, they had experience, they had other ways of solving problems, and they were there as a resource. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was finding that right balance um, to have strong auditors who were independent, uh, but still very knowledgeable and there to help mm-hmm. uh, members is, is why it's been a success to this date. So we still have um, maybe 80 to 90 audits happening per year because they're now all spread out uh, depending on what kind of scoring system that they've ended up with. And, and that audit is looking at the environmental code. It's looking at the way they work is it also looking at the parts that they sell as well is that part of it at this point in time carrick is only an environmental processing Mm -hmm. uh review um Mm -hmm. so there are some safety elements to it all but it is an environmental code um on the part side of things we've really lined ourselves up with ara and we've adopted their gold seal standard Mm um which is Better than nothing is how I would put it. It, it, It's not a a certification of a part. It's not even really a certification of a process. It's a commitment to maintain some best practices and standards. And then we've got some audits to make sure that, you know, what you're saying you're doing on the part side, on the warranty side of things, that you're backing it up with action that we can kind of check. We could do some blind sales calls to see how you're staff are doing it all but that's how we've combined the two how do you process a car where we're working on how do we get better at is how do you sell a quality part that is going to last and meet the needs of that buyer yeah excellent now the industry is changing um and evolving all the time and as we record this we're at the height of the coronavirus epidemic but putting that to one side what do you believe is the biggest challenge that the vehicle recycling industry is facing right now? And how would you like to see this resolved? Well, the car, in, in, in my opinion, is what's driving the changes that are in the industry. So as the manufacturers build more complex cars, uh, different materials, uh, different computerization, uh, they're really selling a system of parts. Um, that puts extra challenges on auto recyclers. Um, at the base, 
they're always looking at the metallic content. What can they guarantee that they're going to extract out of every single vehicle? And for the longest time, it's been ferrous uh, metal, Um, increasingly more non-ferrous as they're putting more aluminum, uh, aluminum, as you would call it, (laughs) um, into cars, um, more rare earths. So the challenge for the member is to figure out uh, how do I move beyond that ferrous metal into all these other specialty metals. Uh, we, as an industry, are still based on parts. You know, that's that's what fundamentally the network that that morphed into the Ontario and then the National Association are parts-based systems. Mm-hmm. So the complexity of the car is also being seen at the complexity of the parts and the complexity of the information that we get on those parts. So that's the biggest challenge that we see right now is tons of really valuable parts on Mm -hmm. those cars, but how do you understand how to sell them? How do they interact with your inventory systems? How do you interact with insurers and repairers who are moving to online digital sales acquisition? Mm -hmm. So we're not getting the information that we used to out of the OEMs, um, and that's that's a, a big push, certainly at the North American level. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of interchange. We have a lot of data that that sits in behind our inventory systems that tells what part can be used where, and that is what really has driven the professionalization of the industry. That data is harder and harder to get and to apply in the real world situation. And that makes part sales harder for our members, which really changes the economics of being a successful recycler these days. So we're working a lot with the ARA in the US to lobby, to cajole, to convince people that we need better data in order to do our jobs better. Um, And we're using that data not only as a how to sell parts, but it's how to safely do it. electrification of the fleet uh, creates some safety issues that our members need to know about. And part of that is data-driven. So we need the information to make sure that we're allowing them to break up those new cars safely and economically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and obviously that's gonna get more and more as, as the vehicle technology changes and also legislation that's gonna drive internal combustion engine vehicles out out of the marketplace. We're going to get more electrification, more more unique technology, and so on and so forth. So that that all flows through that. Um, but what does the vehicle recycling industry have to do to achieve greater acceptance and use of recycled parts in, in vehicle repair? Uh, we need to really understand what the repairers are doing or not doing, and sort of what their drivers are. I've always said our our parts are demand driven they're, they're driven by people other than ourselves you know we can knock on more doors we can do a lot of things but ultimately we need those repairs um, and on the collision side the insurers uh, understanding how we deliver parts how we do things um, and we need to understand how they're using them so there's a lot of pressure from the automakers to have their repair procedures as the gospel, as the only thing that you're allowed to utilize in order to fix a vehicle. And oftentimes their incentive to save a vehicle by using a a cheaper alternative like used 
isn't there. They'd much rather sell a, a new vehicle um, or making sure that their part departments are, are really successful. So if anything, we need to get closer to the repairers so that we understand their business model. We did a lot of that uh, five or eight years ago. We would have the repairers come into our facilities and just see how we handle data, the level of sophistication. And we would go to their operations and look at, you know, how are you writing an estimate? You know, where are you getting your data? Where, where can we give you data earlier in the process so you can understand it? We've lost a little bit of that interaction with the repairs. And I think that's one area that we're looking at. How do we work with the insurers and the repairers to make sure that all three parties to that uh, economic triangle are healthy, but still the manufacturers are inserting themselves there. And, and it's, it's a difficult conversation to have with them to remind them that remember when we were working on the standards for licensing of auto recyclers, you needed a, a healthy auto recycling industry. So you weren't responsible for that vehicle at end of life. And we need to have a little bit of data exchange so that we can make sure that we're still healthy to do that. Mm. Oh, brilliant. And, and, and that, that is, is really ringing, ringing uh, bells for me because we're, we're very much in that process now in the UK looking at, uh, at standard, you know, part standards and, and things of that nature. So uh, it's going to be very, very useful is that, very useful indeed. We'll come back to our conversation with Steve in a moment. Salvage Insight is a new program from SalvageWire. We are creating a range of intensive management bootcamp options for business owners and managers who want to measure current value, create compelling customer experiences, market, promote and sell more effectively, improve profitability, manage smarter at every level of the business, determine the most effective lightweight fleet of foot management structure and create a strategic vision, refresh their mission statement and develop a new business plan. Salvage Insight will launch with a one day bootcamp on Wednesday the 17th of June. For more details and information, please contact SalvageWire through our website, www.salvagewire.com. Back to our conversation with Steve. Now, um, the industry is very, very family orientated. Um, we know that and it has been for a long, long time with lots of generations working together. Can you give any advice to any young or aspiring leaders looking to advance their career in this industry and maybe attain leadership or ownership of their family business? Uh, some of the most successful transitions that I've seen um, have involved um, parents who push the kid out and say, go work somewhere else. You know, as much as I, I love you and you know, want you to take over this business, I don't want you to force to take it over. Hmm. And if all you're doing is learning from me or learning from other auto recyclers, I think you're missing the boat hmm. in, you're, you're missing out on a lot of great management that exists outside. So, hmm. You know, go work somewhere else for one, two, three, four, five years, and then come back. Then you'll have a broader understanding of how the world exists outside of auto recycling. Mm -hmm. I, I found that that most family-run auto recyclers they they involve the kids really early in it, and, and I think that's important yeah. to understand the the culture of the business of the, the culture of loving cars and, and wanting to understand what those cars are made of. 
uh, but getting an experience outside of auto recycling, I think, is really successful. Mm -hmm. um, seeing more and more of the kids going to college, university, taking business, taking psychology, taking yeah. things other than um, how do cars operate. Because ultimately, as a manager and a leader, uh, you, you don't really need to know how to turn a wrench as much as you think you do. These, these you know, there's lots of people out there that you can you know, get to do that type of thing. But management and leadership and understanding other people, other industries, you know, is a different skill set that they need to be exposed to at some point in their careers. That is amazing. That is, you know, I mean, we've asked that question of a number of different people over the last few weeks, and. Uh, yeah, that's probably one of the best answers we've had on that one. And I, well, I love it. You, you know the McDonald's out in yeah. uh, Nova Scotia. So yeah. Ed McDonald, you know, ran a very successful maritime yeah. auto parts. He actually worked for the federal government mm. um, for years. He just loved cars and, mm. and got into the business that way. And his son Andrew, who's taken over now, has just completely uh, blown up that business into a big ways, adding facilities. He's really, you know, taking it somewhere. Mm. He worked as an engineer for a Toyota. So he understands the cars, mm -hmm. but he understands systems. He understands yeah. processes and quality. And you could see him applying all those things. Um, and, I, and I just think that's a really successful mm. model. And, and Ed also just said, Here's the keys. You know, I, I, you know how the business runs, but this is now your business. Yeah. So you make the mistakes. You know, I'm there to back you up. Mm. Um, you know, because that's what you need to do in business. And I know Andrew tries a lot of different things. He's like, I'll poke his nose in here and try mm. something. It's like mm. if it takes, great, yeah. runs with it, yeah. puts it into a system, and and makes it work. If it doesn't work, hey, you cut your losses and move that's on. It. Yeah, brilliant. No, that's amazing. That's amazing. And is there one thing that the Canadian government could do differently that would have a massive benefit to to the to the industry? Right now, the the federal government is is not really involved in our industry. Most of the activity, the the regulations, and the oversight happens at the provincial level. Mm -hmm. uh, so we end up with uh, ten different models of of essentially trying to do the same thing. Uh, we really need the federal government to do what they do best, and that's to act as a, a guiding entity towards um, either individual policies or regulations at the at that local provincial level, yeah. or just having some sort of mandate as to how they're going to tackle the bigger issues. Mm -hmm. So again, electrification is coming. We mm -hmm. can see the sales numbers happening, but there's no real department within the federal government that's taking a hold of it. The one department that is, is more involved in the mining side of things. Mm -hmm. And so they're, oh, electrification, that means we can mine cobalt, we can mine. And we're like, no, 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 you want to recycle. You want to yeah. like use the stuff that you've already dug out of the ground yeah. and use it in a smart way. So we want to see, and I'm asked that question all the time, you know, hey, what's Canada's, you know, end of life vehicle policy? Well, they don't have one. Mm -hmm. And so we're trying to get them to think more, you know, how do you support this industry? How do you make sure that there's some continuity? And, and Canada has a really good history of, of doing that, of, you know, we know that's your jurisdiction province, but just a, here's a little bit of guidance about mm -hmm. what another province has done mm -hmm. successfully so that you can get up and running quickly. So looking for, you know, some sort of, of interaction at that 
big picture level so mm-hmm. that the industry is kind of going in the right direction would be uh, a real benefit to uh, the groundwork that we have to do in the provinces. Lovely. Well, brilliant. Brilliant. Now, you've been you've led the International Roundtable on Automotive Recycling in re- really since its inception. Um, can you explain a little bit more about the IRT, what it stands for, uh, how long it's been running, and also when the next IRT meeting is and how listeners can get involved? The IRT has been my, uh, I'll call it my pet project now for a long time. Um, so I, I, I missed two of them, mm-hmm. uh, but I've been involved in hosting or organizing uh, uh, probably nine or ten of them. Um, and, and, and actually the, the origins of the IRT uh, run through the UK. I, I went to uh, visit uh, Sandy up at Overton mm-hmm. um, as part of some of the network development that I was doing. And, and and he was just, he was wonderful for, mm. sat down with me for about two days and just, you know, here's what we do. And it was the uh, NSF, which I, I think has moved on to a, another name, yeah. um, but the same type of issue. Um, and, and we ended up, uh, Georgia IDs from ARA went over to Brussels where IGARA was holding their meeting. Mm-hmm. And that was what we sort of back labeled as the first IRT because they allowed us the opportunity to say, Here's what we're doing in Canada. Here's what we're doing in the U.S. And we got to hear directly from the countries. Both George and I walked away with, wow, that was awesome. I, I yeah. learned so much in four hours and develop relationships to call somebody from Norway or mm-hmm. from Germany and follow up. And that, that's where the essence of the IRT came. So, so right now, it, it runs every 18 months. We try to spread it around the world. Um, there's five or six sort of original associations, Australia, uh, the UK, Canada, Japan, uh, Malaysia's come on board. We've had Brazil at the last one. And, and we, it's an opportunity to go to a country, kind of see what they're doing, you know, learn more in depth about what their interactions with government, industry, manufacturers, so we can just do that deep dive. But it's also an opportunity to hear directly from people as to what's going on in their country or even their region and oftentimes you know you you know that we struggle with how do you get a direct benefit from attending these things how do we have a you know a white paper or a a common global activity and and it it tends to happen at a very high level but what i think we do is identify opportunities and problems in our countries before they become problems that we can't deal with because we can go and look and see what another country is doing. So I have had numerous experiences where the Canadian government or or provincial government has said, well, you know, I heard that this is what happens in Japan, so we should do this. It's like, well, I've been to Japan twice and here's our experience, here's what really happens. (laughs) And and, And you're kind of framing their knowledge based on you have more knowledge and in every single situation, they, they've all gone, oh, wow, Steve, I had no idea that, you know, Canada was involved internationally. That's great information. So mm-hmm. it, it's helped me, and I think it's helped everybody who's kind of participated in them. So the next IRT is supposed to be later on this year in Japan that we hope it's on, kind yeah. of far enough away from all this uh, business turmoil. Um, and uh, the Japanese did a great job. We, we've been there twice now. And, you know, it's Japan, so culturally very unique. Mm-hmm. And how they do business there is 
uh, mind blowing. You know, you, you can't just sort of take the Japanese model and, and take it back to Canada and say, hey, we should do this because there's a lot of cultural things. There's, a, you know, yeah. even the geography is, is different, yeah. but always tremendous amount of, of learning. And again, we struggle with, okay, how do I make one IRT to the next IRT, mm -hmm. you know, do something in the middle of it all? And that's the role that my ARC board has said, you know, Steve, be the 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 uh, hub of all this. Yeah. If, if you can help kind of learn from one event to the next event and just so you're not re replicating things that have already happened and just act as a bit of a repository to make sure that good positive benefits keep coming out of those IRTs. Yeah, brilliant. That's amazing. Uh, that's brilliant. So how can people find out more about the Canadian Auto Recyclers? Ontario Auto Recyclers, IRT, and yourself? Well, we, um, I do a lot of social media uh, work uh, in terms Twitter, sort of my uh, more policy oriented uh, way of getting information out. Um, so I think I'm, can't remember my name for Twitter, uh, Steve at Auto Recyclers, ARC, I think it is, but it, it, it's, it's, that and uh, you know just the websites, the autorecyclers.ca. We 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 try to push out a lot of detail. We do a lot of blogging. Mm -hmm. uh, we have our own magazine, uh, which we partnered with uh, Media Matters to kind of put out. And it's just a, an annual. Here's what's going on in Canada. If you read that, you'll you'll understand what it's all about. Um, we just try to interact with people and 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 be out there and listening and learning and. Uh, you know, writing articles and just uh, you know making sure people know that we're alive and we've got some good successes and and good things moving on. Okay, and and full details of of all the ways to contact you will be in the show notes uh, when when the podcast gets broadcast as well. So okay, that will be there for everybody. And one final question: We're asking this of everyone who comes on the podcast. What was your first car, and do you have any special memories of that car? Uh, my first car was a 1973 red Dodge Colt that uh, I bought from my father. Uh, that had been about 1986 or 87. And uh, it got me through university. And it was actually my first interaction with a junkyard or a scrapyard or didn't know where they were called auto recyclers at that point in time. I... Um, uh, the head uh, on my engine cracked, and my uncle, who used to be uh, involved in the auto trades, um, took me over to uh, one of the auto recyclers here. I think it was Gore Chant, which is actually now the, the big Copart auction mm -hmm. facility here in London. You know, we picked up a, uh, the top of an engine, whatever that's called, and uh, in his driveway, we replaced that uh, and, and kind of kept it on the road for another two years that I needed to get through university. And I ended up, uh, uh, it uh, so much rust on it that it uh, the rust sort of cracked uh, and pinched some of my electrical. So I, I ended up at a parking lot, kind of turned it off and it wouldn't turn off. It kind of kept going and it was a manual. So I ended up leaning it against the wall and it kept kind of chugging into the wall, into the wall, called the garage and they said, yeah, no, you're not going to fix that one. And and again, next interaction with the automotive industry where I said, well, okay, good. I, I got some quotes to uh, sell it to an auto recycler. And they said, well, yeah, unfortunately, the storage that we're going to charge you is more than the car's worth. So you just write the registration over to us and they'll take the car. So I was like, okay, 
lesson learned. Uh, but the, the the car did me well, and uh, and uh, yeah, a '73 Dodge Colt that uh, learned how to drive standard and uh, got me in a lot of different places. Oh, wonderful, wonderful story. It's amazing, brilliant. Well, Steve, thank you very much for your time on on this podcast. Uh, I know that our listeners will benefit from this. We're all going to be better for it. So that's a, a really, really good, good, uh, good session. Thank you so much for it. Super appreciate it. I, uh, I wish you well in this venture. And uh, when it gets out there, uh, you know, I'll do my job and kind of push it out there going, eh, you may not learn anything, but hopefully I'll entertain you. Brilliant. That was amazing. Thank you, Steve, for your time and your knowledge and your expertise. You'll find full details of how to contact Steve in the show notes. Please don't forget to take the time to like and share this podcast with your friends and colleagues and give us a rating. Depollution podcasts are released every Tuesday.